We have come to this story today in the fourth chapter of John's Gospel, and uh, it's the story, of course, of the of the woman at the well. Uh, we read that together with our scripture reading today, and there are many different things that we could draw out and apply from this story, but today I want to look at it from the standpoint of the woman being representative of the thirsty soul. Now, as we go through the series that we've just entered into on um, Jesus encounters, what we're doing is we're looking at the different different people in the scripture that, that Jesus had these personal encounters with that resulted in life transformation. And, and the person is sort of uh, embodies uh, an idea. So remember last time in our uh, initial uh, teaching, we looked at Nicodemus, and he, he was sort of the embodiment of the, of the religious person. And so here, as we come to looking at this woman, she is more or less the embodiment uh, of the thirsty soul. She's a woman who uh, nothing in the world has been able to satisfy her. And so she becomes kind of just in her own life experience, she, she kind of becomes a, a picture of all of humanity really, because that is, um, that, that really is the case with uh, all people. Uh, the story of this woman, it illustrates the universal reality that Augustine described when he said, you, speaking of God, have created us for yourself and our hearts are restless until we find rest in you. That's, that's the truth. That's the universal reality. If we're honest, that, that's the way it is. There's, there's a restlessness in all of us. And that restlessness, of course, Augustine understood this for both from scripture and experience. The restlessness was due to the fact that we were created by God and for him. Now, as I said, he understood that to be true from scripture. The, the scripture teaches us, the Bible teaches this in a variety of different uh, ways and places. There are verses in the Bible that just more or less kind of uh, just say it very straightforwardly. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, Solomon in uh, the Proverbs, this would be Proverbs 27, 20. He said, hell and destruction are never full. So the eyes of man are never satisfied. In writing uh, Ecclesiastes, Solomon said, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. And indeed, all is vanity or emptiness and grasping for the wind. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8.20, he said that the creation itself was subjected to futility or the, or the sense of, um, as, as we're talking about here, just the, this futility meaning um, there, there's a sense of, of never being fulfilled. That's the idea. Now, of, of course, you know, Solomon is an interesting uh, case study, if you want to look at somebody who made these statements based on uh, his own experience. Solomon was a guy who was uh, the, the wealthiest man in his generation, the wisest man maybe in the world ever. And, and yet, 
you know, he, he gains um, great wealth and fame and power and all of those things. And at the end, he says many times over that it's all like grasping the wind. As I said, Augustine would have um, made that statement about our hearts being restless until we find our rest in God. Uh, he made that, as I said, based upon scripture, but his own experience. Augustine was, uh, he was one of the great theologians in the history of the church. Uh, he was a philosopher. Even to this day, he goes down as one of the brilliant uh, people in human history. Uh, before he was a Christian, he was, uh, he was a philosopher who was fairly well known. And so by his own experience, he could testify to this truth that the knowledge that he attained, that the privileges that he gained, that the experience that he he engaged in, all of it in the end uh, left him with a sense of emptiness. And it's not only true of, you know, what we find in scripture or in the ancient world, we see this very truth being unwittingly expressed by men and women today. Um, I can think of any one of a number of famous people who have expressed these kinds of things. You know, the person who's at the top of their game in sports, maybe, or uh, the person who's got the, you know, the number one hit song, or, or the person who's just, you know, they're, they're the, the newest thing in the, the world of uh, Hollywood or, or whatever the case, we find oftentimes they, they say things that betray the fact that even though you would think that all of these things would certainly bring fulfillment and contentment in life, they say things that indicate that that is not the case. Many, many years ago, actress Sophia Loren, some of you might uh, remember her if you're older like me, um, but back in, in her time, I mean, she was, you know, quite the, you know, she's a beautiful woman and she was very uh, well known in, in Hollywood and around the world. But she said this kind of in the prime of her career. She said, in my life, there is an emptiness that is impossible to fulfill. And you look at her and you would think, uh, you know, of course she's fulfilled. She's beautiful. She's got, she's got it made. She's got everything. But she says, no, that wasn't the case. In more recent times, uh, celebrity news anchor Pat O'Brien, uh, maybe you remember some of the background story with Pat O'Brien, well-known, um, I think, on the Insiders. I can't remember the exact program, but you know, well-known uh, anchor person in that world but had a, a fall because of alcoholism and so forth. But in an interview with Oprah Winfrey, he, he was talking about his experience. And he said, the thing about fame is that we are people who love to be loved by strangers and we can't get enough. He said, you want more and more and more. The only thing that matters is more. You've got to have more. And, and, you know, again, like I said, sort of unwittingly, they're expressing the very thing that the Bible is telling us, that there's, there's no satisfaction with the things in this world. Uh, ultimately, our satisfaction can only be realized through a relationship with God. One more quote uh, from Madonna, 
who have said who has said many provocative things, of course. But uh, one I think is very telling. I won't be happy until I'm famous like God. So, again, the point is, all of these things are describing this insatiable thirst for meaning, significance, fulfillment. And even though it is unrecognized by these people and many others, it is in reality a thirst for God. It is in reality that thing that Augustine said, that we were created by God and for God, and until we come to him and find rest in him, there's a restlessness in us. And, and this is what we see in the story here. So that's the, the way I want to uh, look at the story. And I want to show you how this whole idea works itself out in the life of this woman and how Jesus responds to this thirsty soul. So the first thing is there just a couple of things I want us to note before we actually look at uh, the woman herself and some of the things that she said and then uh, the response of Jesus to her. So the first thing I want you to notice is in verse three, speaking of Jesus, it says, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. Now, this is an interesting thing that John is telling us here. Now, if you understand the geography of Israel, Judah is in the south, and Galilee is in the north, and Samaria is in between. But it wasn't only not necessary to go through Samaria. It was preferred by Jews not to go through Samaria. So it wasn't a geographical necessity for Jesus to go through Samaria. He could have gone west along the coast up the Via Maris and come to Galilee that way and uh, avoided going through Samaria. He could have gone east, crossed the Jordan River, gone up through Perea, which is normally the way the Jews would go. They didn't want to go through Samaria. It wasn't uh, a place that they cared to pass through because there was a racial tension between the Samaritans and the uh, the Jews. But it says that Jesus needed to go through. Why did he need to go through then? He needed to go through there because he knew there was a person. There was an appointment that he had to keep. There was a woman that was going to meet him at a well. She has no idea, but Jesus knows this, and he's going to be there to speak into the deepest longings of her heart. And the thing that I want you to see in this is that God is seeking people out. You know, so many times we, we kind of put the emphasis on the wrong side of things, even in our own experience. Maybe those of us who have, you know, come to know the Lord, we've come to trust in him. It, when we're recounting our experience, we're talking about how you know, well, I felt this way and then I did this and then I was on a search for that and then I went here and, and then I finally found Jesus. And that's true from our point of view, but guess what? We were on that journey in the first place because Jesus was looking to find us. He needed to go through Samaria so he might have this encounter with this woman. Now, as you see his encounter with this woman, another thing to note is that in his conversation with her alone, 
He is crossing cultural barriers just to have the conversation. Now, if we read just a little bit further into the story, in verse 27, we read this. At this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Now, why did they marvel? that he was talking with a woman, because culturally that was unacceptable. You didn't do that in that culture. You see, among the Jews, Jewish men did not talk to women publicly unless they were married to them. And especially a religious leader, especially somebody that was recognized like Jesus was as a, a spiritual leader, uh, a rabbi. Uh, the, the rabbinical writing has all kinds of instruction and prohibitions about having uh, contact with women in public. So Jesus is crossing this cultural barrier that he doesn't, he's not concerned with that. There's something more important here that needs to be addressed. So that's another thing. Uh, thirdly, Jesus crosses a racial barrier by engaging with a Samaritan woman. Because the text tells us when Jesus speaks to her and asks her for a drink, her response is, why are you a Jew asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? And then John tells us, for Jews and Samaritans have no dealings with one another. So there's this animosity that exists between these two people groups. And yet Jesus, again, he doesn't let any of that prevent him from reaching out. He crosses over that racial barrier. And, and just to say this before we move on, these are the kinds of things that we need to uh, learn from as we, as we think about our efforts to reach out to people. And we're looking to Jesus as our model because sometimes we can be discouraged because of cultural kinds of barriers. And, you know, there are people today that would even, in the church, well-intended, but I think misguided, who would say, no, 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 you can't, you know, you, you don't want to go over there and, and, you know, reach those people because after all, and there's some sort of cultural reason why you don't do that. And in some cases, sadly to say, there, there are even sometimes racial issues. I mean, of course, there's a whole you know, part of our country where they, they still have uh, segregated churches where, you know, if you're this color, you go to this church. If you're that color, you go to that church. And, you know, you don't really cross over there. And so these kinds of things is, have always existed. But Jesus is our model in breaking down and crossing over these kinds of barriers. So these are just uh, a few things that I think were important to note before we jump into looking at the, the woman herself. So as we go on in the story, we come to the woman and it tells us concerning her that she came to, to Jacob's well to draw water. And it says that, that it was about the sixth hour that this happened. Now, the reason this is significant is because normally speaking, the, uh, the ladies would come to draw the water early in the morning. And of course, you could understand why they would do that because they would need the water for uh, all of the activity of the day 
Uh, also, it would be cooler earlier in the morning. But it was also a time, undoubtedly, of socializing for the women who would come to the well. So they would all come at basically the same time in the morning. But this woman comes, she comes alone, and she comes in the middle of the day. Why? Because she was also a social outcast. She was a woman that wasn't welcomed in the circle of the more respectable ladies in the city. Now, let me just say this. The Samaritans, although they were not Jews in the, in the most proper sense, they were, in, they were in a sense Jews. They, their, their history was a, uh, a, co- a combination. Back when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom, there were many Jews that remained in the land, and the, the Assyrians uh, repopulated the land with people from other nations that they sent in. And these, these groups intermarried with one another, and they embraced a sort of a perverted form of the, the Mosaic religious system. So even though they weren't Jews in the real accurate sense of following directly with um, the, the law of Moses and so forth, they, they, they were very religious themselves. They had a high moral standard and those kinds of things. So this woman would have been seen by the women in the community as immoral and as someone that should be avoided. And yet we see that Jesus reaches out again. So he crosses cultural barriers, he crosses racial barriers, he crosses social barriers. And how do we know all of this about the woman? Well, the text tells us that she was a woman who was married five times and was currently living with a man that she wasn't married to. So even though that's kind of you know, normal for our culture today. It's becoming more and more normal. Uh, Back in the time and in that place, that wasn't the case. Now, among the Romans, that would have been maybe acceptable, but not among the Jews and not among the Samaritans. So she was a woman who was an outcast. She was a woman who I think we can say without um, conjecture, I think we can legitimately Uh, see her as a a woman who has uh, issues of sexual immorality and uh, adultery. But there's one other thing about her that I find very interesting. She is also a woman who has spiritual longings. And we see that in verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming and he will teach us. He will tell us all things. So she has spiritual longings, even though she's messed up, obviously. But yet she's got these spiritual longings. She's got this sense that somehow, some way, sometime, there's going to be some deliverance that's going to come. She's, she's a broken person, broken in the sense that Her life does not work the way it's supposed to work. And yet she has this this sort of like it's a distant hope that somebody's going to come along. Messiah's going to come and he's going to make everything better. He's going to tell us everything we need to know. He's going to fix it all. So we see that she has these spiritual longings. 
So she's a social outcast. She's sexually immoral, but she's got these deep spiritual longings. Now, Jesus, in his encounter with her, I want you to notice the first thing he says to her. Verse 7, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, the reason I'm pointing this out is because this is Jesus's way of engaging her in the real issues deep down in her life. Now, he takes the, you know, just kind of the natural surroundings of where they are, and he's going to begin to engage her. And everything that Jesus is saying is he's speaking from a spiritual point of view, but she's initially only understanding everything from a natural point of view. But I think it's fascinating that the very first thing that he says to her is, give me a drink. The first thing that he, he wants to bring up is the issue of thirst. Now, Jesus could have, of course, gotten himself a drink of water. Know that. Jesus didn't need this woman to get him a drink. He could have done that himself. But he, but he intentionally engages her on this level because he's going to ultimately bring her to the place of recognizing that the reason her life is the way it is is because of this deep, deep thirst. And of course, he's going to reveal to her that he is the, the answer to that thirst. But he says to her, give me a drink. And then, of course, she brings up the, well, why are you asking me for a drink? Uh, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman and so forth. And then Jesus responds and he says this. He says, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I mean, it's, it's amazing the way Jesus just goes uh, with, with this conversation. Just, he just gets right to the issue. He said, if you knew the gift of God. Now, you've got to imagine, on the one hand, she's probably like, wow, this is a weird conversation. First of all, this Jewish guy's talking to me. That's weird enough right there. But now he's talking about the gift of God. If you knew the gift of God. And, and then he says, and if you knew who I was, you would ask me and I would give you living water. And so you, you've got to imagine that on the one hand, she's probably like perplexed. Like, wow, what, what a, kind of a conversation is this? But she's obviously intrigued by the conversation. She responds and she says, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water. Now, living water, if you go to Israel today, um, they will, they'll talk about living water. Living water, uh, it could mean, and from a natural standpoint, it meant fresh water, water that was flowing, water that was coming up from its source. That's living water. Jesus is talking about it in a different sense. He's talking about it from, as I said, the spiritual standpoint. But her question is, where are you going to get this? And then she says, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and so forth? And Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him 
will never thirst, but the water that I will give will become a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So now Jesus is taking these, the natural surroundings, as I said, the well, the water there, but like I'm saying, he's speaking spiritually. And he says this, and this is important for us to to recognize. He says, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. And of course, we know that if, you know, one glass of water is not going to quench your thirst forever, right? It's, it's the common experience that you're you, you, you know, water will quench your thirst briefly, but then you're going to have to come back for more. Well, when Jesus says, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, he's not just talking about water in the natural sense. He's talking about all that the natural world has to offer. So when he says, whoever drinks this water, we can understand him to be saying, whoever partakes of whatever the world has to offer in, um, in a quest for fulfillment will never be fulfilled. That's what he's saying. So the things that we were talking about initially, the expression of these various people about the ongoing futility of life, the emptiness and so forth, they are, as I said earlier, they're unwittingly just telling us what Jesus told us right here in the passage. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. You see, the truth is there is a God-shaped void in every person's heart, and it cannot be filled by anything this world has to offer. And this is why we go running from thing to thing always in search of that one thing that is going to finally bring us that that contentment, that fulfillment, that satisfaction, that sense of purpose and completion, but, but we never get there. And nobody does. And the mistake that we so often make is we think that, well, we haven't arrived there because we didn't get the stuff yet. If we got to the position, if we got those possessions, if we got that experience, then of course we would have it. But the reason I think it's good to, uh, you know, listen to some of the celebrities and so forth in the culture, uh, especially when they're talking candidly about this stuff, is because they've got all the stuff that the average person thinks you need to find the fulfillment. And they're telling us, no, no, it's, it's not here. But again, they're echoing what Jesus himself said. If you drink this water, you will thirst again. But his promise, if you drink the water that I will give, you will never thirst Not only will you never thirst, that water will become a fountain of living water springing up from within. So Jesus is saying that he will not only satisfy us for the moment, he will satisfy us continually. And not only will he satisfy us continually, but that satisfaction that we receive will then become a fountain that will bubble up and bring a blessing to others. (coughs) Now, the woman, at this point, she's interested in the offer that Jesus is making. And so she says, sir, give me this water. She's 
<coughs> Undoubtedly, at this point, she understands that it's not the water in the well. But she says, give me this water that I may thirst no more. And Jesus said to her, now, just think about this for a minute. He says to her, go call your husband and come here. Now, I, reading this, I think she must have thought, that's weird. Why, why is my husband being brought into this now? We, we have, you know, there's been no conversation up until this point about anything like that. Why would Jesus say, go call your husband? So she says, well, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you're right. You have no husband. You have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. Why does Jesus bring this up? Because Jesus is putting his finger on the real issue. See, this is the issue with this woman. Now, she's got this, this longing, this, this thirst inside, this sense that there's got to be something more, this, this longing for significance. But what is she doing? She's seeking meaning, purpose, and fulfillment in life through something other than a relationship with God. She's seeking to fulfill her need for God through relationships with other people. And in doing this, indirectly, she is engaging in idolatry. You see, this is what idolatry is. Idolatry is trying to find your purpose, your meaning, your significance in life through things rather than through God. We were created by God and for God. And yet we, we engage in all of this different idolatry. Now, you know, an idol wasn't just something that you just bowed down to for the sake of bowing down to something. An idol was always a means to an end. And the end, of course, was, was something personal. So all of the ancients and people today who engage in idolatry... It's always with the objective of some, I'm going to derive some benefit from this. And so for her, even though she, of course, wouldn't see it like this, the reality is she is an idolater, but her idol is relationships. She thinks that this is where I'm going to find satisfaction, but it's obvious that it's not working for her because she's been through five marriages and now she's just living with a person. So this is what Jesus does. He's offering her living water, but before she can drink the living water, the sin, the idolatry, the sexual immorality in her life must be dealt with because not only are those things unable to fulfill the thirsty soul, these are things that, that separate us from God and in the end ruin our lives. And this is something that, that we need to understand. Jesus offers us living water. But if we're going to drink of it, if we're going to partake of it, the idolatry that's in our life, we have to, we have to turn from it. And that's what he's calling her to at this point. And her response is interesting because once Jesus says this to her, she says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. All of a sudden she realizes that there's, there's an encounter with God going on here. And of course she responds. We know from the rest of the story, she goes back to the town. She tells people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever 
have done. I think this is the Messiah. And then later on, the people in the, the town, they, uh, they admit that it was through her influence that they originally came to, to listen to Jesus. But then they say, we, we heard him ourselves and we, now we believe as well. But leaving that for a moment, I want to take us from Samaria 2,000 years ago right to today. And I want to talk a little bit more just about this, just the whole reality of how nothing in this world can satisfy us. Uh, Timothy uh, Keller, who I've quoted often, uh, in his book um, on encounters with Jesus, he's, he quotes uh, author David Foster Wallace as a contemporary illustration of this. Uh, David Foster Wallace was a well-known author who, who uh, gained quite a bit of notoriety, but in, he, um, he did a commencement speech to the graduating class at uh, Kenyon College. And this is part of what he said in the speech. Now, keep in mind that this guy is not at all, uh, he's not a believer, he's not a Christian at all. He says this, he says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful. That's, of course, his perspective. It is that they are unconscious. They are the default setting. So what he's saying here is, look, you know, he says they're not evil or sinful. He just says, this is just the way we are. This is, this is how everybody is. Everybody, his point is everybody's worshiping something, and he's right. Everybody is worshiping something. Why? Everybody's worshiping something in the hope of being fulfilled. And everybody in the end is coming up with the same experience. There is no fulfillment. It doesn't deliver what people are hoping that it is going to deliver. Keller goes on and he says this. He says, Wallace was by no means a religious person, but he understood that everyone worships, everyone trusts in something for their salvation. Everyone bases their lives on something that requires faith. And then Keller goes on to say, a couple of years after giving that speech, Wallace killed himself. And this non-religious man, his parting words to us are pretty terrifying. Something will eat you alive. Because even though you might never call it worship, you can be absolutely sure you are worshiping and you are seeking. And Jesus says, unless you are worshiping me, unless I am the center of your life, unless you're trying to get your spiritual thirst quenched through me and not through these other things, whatever you worship will in the end abandon you and let you down. 
interesting. Interesting, the, the candidness and the clarity with which David Foster Wallace spoke these words to that graduating class and interesting and tragic that he soon ended his own life. But obviously he is describing this because he experienced this. There's no question about it. And again, he would be speaking about it from the standpoint of having achieved it. Not from the position of, well, you know, someday I'm going to get there and it's all going to be good. But no, he's there and he's telling everybody, no, it's, it's not what you, what you think it is. And that is, as I said from the very beginning, of course, that's the message of Scripture. The message of Scripture is that we were created by God and for God. And until we come into fellowship with God and we're living for him, there is no fulfillment in life. And Jesus comes into this world in order to bring us that living water that will quench that thirst in our souls that nothing else could ever quench. Now, as we close, I want to uh, just again consider what Jesus said to the woman. He said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus is claiming that he alone can... uh, fill the thirsty soul. But notice, if you knew the gift of God, do we know the gift of God? And for those of us who do know the gift of God, now this is something that we need to recognize. And we are surrounded. Wherever you are in the world, you are surrounded by people like this woman. And most of them, like this woman, do not realize that deep down inside, they are thirsting for God. They don't, they don't realize that, but they are. And we have opportunities to speak to them about the gift of God. And we're called to do that. One of the reasons why I chose to do this series is not just for our own personal understanding and edification, but part of it was to sort of provoke us as God's people to remember that, that we are part of reaching the world, that God uses us. And just as Jesus came to this woman, just as he had to go through Samaria, God will put us in places and bring before us thirsty people and He wants us to tell them about the gift of God. If you knew the gift of God and, and by his grace and through his wisdom and you know, all of that, we, we need to make ourselves available to do that. And if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you, he would give you living water. And our message is that if you drink this water, you'll thirst again. But Jesus will give you living water that will satisfy you continually and that will overflow from your lives. Now, as we look at our own lives, I want to just challenge us, and I'm included in this challenge here. Um, you know, as, as we look at our lives, is there this well of water that Jesus spoke of? Is that a reality in our lives? You know, in another place, John chapter 7, Jesus talking about similar kinds of things. 
he said that uh, he that believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of their innermost being shall gush forth torrents of living water. When I read that, I look at myself and think, wait, torrents? I don't know. I probably wouldn't describe it as a torrent. But, but if that's the case, if it's something less than that, if it's maybe even a trickle, we have to ask ourselves the question, why? Well, the truth is we have to keep drinking. We come and we have that initial drink where we are introduced and we, you know, Christ comes into our life, but we don't stop drinking then, do we? I mean, if you just drank once and then stopped, you would quickly become dehydrated. And what do you need to do? You need to rehydrate. You need to drink more. And so for us, if we're if we're sensing that that living water is not really bubbling up from within, it's not really overflowing, then what do we do? Well, we need to drink more. And we drink more through just engaging with the Lord in his word and through communing with him in prayer and worship and through uh, coming together as God's people and building each other up. These are the ways that we drink. And so we do that so we can ourselves receive the benefit of that fulfillment, but then also pass that on to others. Now, I, I want to take us finally to back to the words uh, or to, to what the woman says to Jesus and what he says to her in, in that final point there in the last verse where the woman says, I know that Messiah is coming. He will tell us all things. And, and what I want to say about this is a couple things. But first of all, like I said, the woman has spiritual longings. And let's again just look at her life, okay? She's just, to put it simply, she's messed up. Here's a messed up gal right here. But deep down, she has a sense like, you know, there, there's something, something's, somebody's gonna come and, and, you know, fix it. Somebody's gonna come and fix everything. And you know, she was right. She was right. Somebody will come and fix it. But where she was missing it is that the one that was going to fix it was standing right in front of her. And, and she was still thinking it was, you know, some, something further down the road. So she says, I know Messiah is coming. When he comes, basically paraphrasing, she says, he's going he's to fix everything. And Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. And here's my point. Jesus has come. The answer is here. We don't have to wait. We don't have to go look for it. We don't have to run off somewhere else and say, you know, I'm going to go find it over there. Or, uh, well, you know, we just got to wait. And, you know, one of these days it's, it's going to come. I look at people, I know people personally, whose lives are so screwed up and you know, they're kind of like, well, I know. So, you know, someday it's almost like, well, yeah, you know, someday Messiah is going to come, you know, he's going to come make better. No, he came already. He's here now. He can make it better right now. I can't tell you, and you probably know this as well. I know lots of people who know that Jesus has come. They know it. They'll tell you, I met uh, just a few days ago, Met a couple of young guys that were here from New York and they were heroin addicts and, you know, they were coming out to do some drug rehab thing or whatever and they didn't like it and so they left and they were on, you know. Anyway, they were stoned out of their minds and, you know, yet, you know, having a conversation with them and 
you know, talking to them about the Lord. They're like, oh, Jesus, yeah, you know, Jesus is great. And man, I love Jesus. And Jesus is my Lord. And it's like, well, let's talk about that for a second. You know, no. And I know Jesus is going to help me out, you know, and get in this rehab. They, I'm, I'm only bringing them up because it's, it's a recent situation, but they are, they are the embodiment of so many people. You don't have to be a heroin addict. But, you know, all these people, all these broken lives who know they can tell you about Jesus. They can tell you that he came and all of this. And, you know, someday in Jesus, it's like, no, I who speak to you am he. I am here now. Now is the time. Now is the time to receive the living water, not looking somewhere, oh, you know, down the road. No. When I was in Jerusalem a few weeks ago, I, my son and I, we took a taxi from uh, the Holocaust Museum, Yad Vashem, to, back to our hotel. And as we were going, the, the taxi driver was quite, quite a character, you know, and he was real funny. And um, he, he was all excited. You know, the president was coming to visit and he had all kinds of thoughts about that. And he was not shy about expressing uh, his feelings. And he was actually very much pro uh, the U.S. and the president and so forth. And, you know, he's, he's going on and on about, you know, getting our problems solved and so forth. And I said, well, you know, look, uh, here's the truth. Uh, Messiah is coming. And Messiah is the only one that's going to fix your problems. And, you know, he's sort of I could tell didn't really want to talk about that. He was more happy to talk about the president's visit than the Messiah's visit. Uh, but, he, but he, you know, he sort of acknowledged it with a, a little bit of a, a strained sort of a laugh. And, but then I said, I said, but you know, the truth is Messiah has already come. So he, he actually, he's coming back. And the conversation really didn't go any further than that. But it was kind of that same idea, you know, that, well, out there, you know, this is going to happen and this is going to make it all better and this. And it's like, no, the answer is already here. And I love this. And, and the one final thing I want to say here is that the thing really that just amazes me about this particular encounter and where it ends here in verse 26 is Jesus says to this woman with absolute clarity something that he rarely said to anyone and he did not clearly say even to the religious leaders of the day. You know, when Jesus spoke of his Messiahship to the religious leaders, he was very ambiguous. And as a matter of fact, at one point, you can read it in John chapter 10, they came to him and they said, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us right now. Jesus said, well, I've been telling you, but you haven't listened. But but anyway, obviously, Jesus was a bit ambiguous. With this woman, she says, I know Messiah is coming. Jesus said, I'm here. It's me. I am the Messiah. And here's the thing that I love about it. What I love about it is, and let's go all the way back to where we started. He must go through Samaria. This woman who the religious leaders and the civil leaders and the rich and famous and all the important people of the world had no idea that this woman even existed on planet earth and couldn't care less about her life. This is the woman that Jesus chose to say, I am the Messiah too. And what does that tell us? It tells us that no matter how insignificant you might think you are, no matter how 
Uh, you might be overlooked or unrecognized. Uh, you know what? Jesus has come for you. He has come to you. And he wants to know you just for who you are and because he loves you, even though nobody else even cares that you exist, perhaps. He does care. And he does offer that gift of that living water. And he came. And we could say in closing, uh, for us, it wasn't simply that he needed to go through Samaria. He needed to come to planet Earth. Why? Because of the thirsty souls that needed to be quenched with the living water that he offers. And so, God help us not to miss that offer of living water, but God help us to partake of it. So, Lord, we pray that you would pour out that living water upon us. And Lord, I would just pray right this moment for anybody here, anybody listening, watching. Lord, I pray for the thirsty. I pray for those who are trying to find meaning, purpose, fulfillment, and they've been through this and that and the other thing, and they're still where they started, Lord, just in that place of there is no fulfillment. And Lord, we read all the time about people taking their lives because they just come to a place of just feeling like it's just, what, what is it all worth? What is it all about? Lord, I just pray that there wouldn't be a single person today hearing these words that would turn away from the fountain of living water, but they might drink and receive that water of life. So Lord, work, we pray among those who need to receive that today. And Lord, for us that have received it already in the sense that we've initially drunk and we've participated and experienced that new life, Lord, may we continue to be refreshed at the fountain of living water through fellowship with you. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.